0: Hey, it's good to be with you guys this morning, oh, man, I missed you last week, I, I had a, a DJ gig at a wedding at an airfield where the couple at the very end literally flew off into the sunset. Yeah. I was out there with my 22, seeing if I could drop them, <laughs> no, I didn't. yeah, it, it, was, it was awesome. It was just such an, an amazing wedding, but I'm glad to be back with you this morning. We of course are going to resume our study in Job called Sovereign Suffering. Um, We have been focused on Job's response to Bildad, his friend, in chapters 9 and 10 where Job fantasized about taking God to court to prove his innocence, to reverse the judgments that he thought were against him, and to bring an end to his suffering. But as he fantasized about doing this, he realized there are obstacles in his way, and he identifies them in the text, and we made those kind of our main points. The first obstacle, if you remember, is the predicament of God's infiniteness. We saw that in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Job basically believed that God was simply too holy and too perfect and too powerful, too great, too knowledgeable, too wise, and just extremely brilliant, just too brilliant that he could even begin to resist God in court or even meet God in court. And he was right. The second obstacle we looked at and the second point that we made was the permanence of God's judgment. We looked at that in chapter 9, verses 13 to 24. Job believed that when God renders judgment, that's it. There's no going back. And he gave the example of Rahab, a mythological sea monster God had allegedly judged and destroyed in antiquity, and we see that in Job 26, verse 12. Now these two obstacles together, they illustrate our third point, or they illustrated our third point, and that was the pointlessness of Job's pursuit. We looked at that in chapter 9, verses 25 to 35. In other words, the combination of God's infiniteness and permanent judgment made it impossible for Job to pursue his silly fantasy and try to take God to court. Now we come to chapter 10, chapter 10, where we will look at our final point. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we humble ourselves yet again here and submit ourselves to You. We place ourselves under You. And under the authority of your word, we pray that as your word goes out, that it would accomplish every one of its purposes, that it would soften those whom you seek to soften through it. It would, even in a sense like with Pharaoh, it would harden those whom you seek to harden. And that's a weird thing to request, but we want your will to be done here. And your will is mysterious, and it does a lot of things that we can't get our mind around but it's perfect and it's pure and it's holy. And so we submit ourselves to you now. We ask that you you teach us and you train us from Job chapter 10. Help us to understand the poetic parallels and connections here, and help us to apply the Word. Help us to live the Word. That's what you've called your people to do. So we ask for your help now, and we pray this in Christ's matchless name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the final point, we'll cover that first, the final point is number four, right, because we had three Ps, now we have our fourth one, it is the plea of Job, and we see that in the entire chapter, verses 1 through 22 of chapter 10, the plea of Job. In other words, this whole chapter, chapter 10, is one long prayer or plea. And through the, through the use of poetry, Job pleads with God, and he basically asks Four agonized questions. We're going to draw these questions out of the text. And I'd like to begin with the first one. This is the first question that Job is asking through his poetry. That would be A, it is, Why are you against me? Why are you against me? He's asking God, Why are you against me? We see this in verses one through three. We'll pick it up at verse one. Here's the next thing he says He says, I loathe my life, I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Job begins his, his long, lengthy plea here by stating how he feels about his life. This is the third time he's actually declared that he loathes his life, that he hates his life. At this point in his life, he hated his life. We see this in chapter 7, verse 17, chapter 9, verse 21, and of course here in chapter 10, verse 1. This man, because of his circumstances, because of his situation, he literally loathes and hates his life right now. And I must simply ask, have you ever gone through an ordeal that inflicted so much pain, that depleted you so terribly physically and mentally and spiritually that you actually hated your life? That you felt like you hate your own life? I, I, I got to admit to you, I, I'm, a, I'm a weak man. I'm a sinful man at times, but, and, and, and I have felt this way. There have been times where, where you know, the circumstances that were bearing down on me, and and, and this happened and that happened, I, I might want to add that most of the circumstances that were so terrible were self-inflicted. I should add that. I did them to myself. But there were times where it, it was just, this life stinks. I hate my life. I hate where I'm at in my life. You felt that way before? Maybe some of you feel that way right now. Maybe some of you feel that way right now. You don't like where you're at in your life right now, you basically hate what your life has become, you hate your life. And that is Job here in the text. He hates his life. And I don't think that the biggest grind for Job was the fact that he, you know, he lost his wealth, his children, and health. I think that those three things would be a huge grind for me and, and certainly drive me into despair, but I'm not convinced that that's the, the main grind for him. I believe the main grind, the main thing that really bothered Job was he had this sense of not knowing where he was at in his relationship with God. He had lost that sense of closeness and and favor with God. That's the real rub for Job. Not being in close relationship with God and walking in sweet fellowship with Him, and then having the bottom fall out of His world and His health and everything destroyed, and then, and then God's silence for, for a large section. I, I, apparently, he had this ongoing relationship with God where he was talking to God, and he would hear God's voice in these things when he's praying, and, and all of that has ceased and gone, and that's the real rub for him. He, th- he actually thinks that God is now against him because of all the calamity that's fallen into his life. So the biggest rub for him was not being sure of his relationship with God. And and as as Christians, we go through a lot of stuff, a lot of crap, pardon my French, but the biggest grind for us ever in our lives should come from that, an uncertainty, and not just our circumstances and the things that happen, but the big rub for us should be the same kind of uncertainty. Now, now we know that Christ has established something eternal for us, so we should never really wrestle with that. But if we're going to have a grind, it should be that, not just our physical, temporal circumstances. Job, through his concern about his relationship with God, he displays the true heart of a believer. See, the true heart of a believer is to be concerned about your relationship with God at all times. Not doubtful and worried that it's going to go away like Job, but concerned about the sweetness of it, and the closeness of that fellowship. And one of the things that impacts that is our sin. So Job has the right mindset. I mean, he's, he's wrong most of the time here, but he has the right heart in that his main concern is where he's at with God. That should be us. That should be us. He, he literally thought that his relationship with God was in jeopardy, that God was against him. And Satan is behind this. Satan was unsuccessful in getting Job to curse God, right? That was the original bet. He didn't succeed at that, yet he was, however, successful in twisting Job's perception of God, which drove the battered patriarch into despair. Hence the phrase, I loathe my life. So who's the culprit behind this despair and this this twisting of his perception and understanding of God? It is the one who twists. It is the deceiver. It is Satan. Satan didn't succeed in getting him to curse God, but he certainly got him, he succeeded in getting him to doubt God's love for him. And because of all of this, Job says, I refused to be silent. I refused to shut my mouth. And I think his friends were basically telling him, you need to shut up, stop talking for once. Every time your lips move, more trouble happens. And he, I'm not going to remain silent, he says here. He was compelled to give free utterance to his complaint and speak in the bitterness of his soul, he says. In other words, Job was determined to express his confoundment regarding the unwarranted attacks of the Almighty. That's his complaint. I don't know why you're doing this to me. I'm blameless. I'm upright. Why are you doing this? That's his complaint. Verse 2, here's really where he begins to pray. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Job tells Bildad and really tells God that he he will tell God, he will declare to God that he should not condemn him, but let him know why he contends against him. Job wanted answers. He wanted answers. According to his theology, God rewards those who do good and He punishes those who do bad. As a blameless, upright, God-fearing man, chapter 1, verse 1, Job reckoned that he had done nothing bad, nothing to turn God against him, so he demands an explanation. Why are you against me? Why are these things happening? Now did God oblige? Job, did he give the battered patriarch an explanation? The Almighty did eventually speak, but no explanation was given. What's worse, not hearing from God or hearing no explanation? Both, that's a double-edged sword. God speaks to him in chapters 40 through 42, but he doesn't give him an explanation as to why he allowed Job to go through this or put Job through this or Job lost everything that he lost and God was silent and all the things that were the rub for him. Instead, God rebuked Job. He rebukes him. He doesn't give him an explanation. Here's why I did what I did. We see why he did what he did in chapters 1 and 2, but Job wasn't privy to that information. Instead of the explanation, God rebukes him for what? In chapters 40 through 41, we can deduce that he rebukes him for questioning God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. You know, if we don't like the way something is turning out, and we want to know why, God does not have to explain the situation to us. I think that the demanding answers when God is not going to give us answers is the pathway to insanity which is what Job displays throughout the book as a type of insanity. God owes no one answers. He answers to no one, especially us puny little ants. Now think of it like this. If God gave us answers all the time, answers to all those questions, why is this happening, why is that? If He gave us answers all the time, how would we possibly learn to walk by faith? If we have all the answers and can see all the things and, and everything and understand everything that's going on, we have no need to walk by faith, which is what we're commanded to do. The absence of answers compels us and moves us to walk and live by faith, which is what God wants us to do. we wouldn't learn to walk by faith we wouldn't even understand what that means if he gave us answers all the time instead god commands his people to trust him not to question his sovereignty not to question his will you must understand that god is an educator he's not in the teachers union he's above it but he is a teacher he is an educator He does not despise childlike curiosity. He does not shy away from honest, heartfelt questions. In fact, He has provided us with the ultimate textbook, the Bible, which contains all of the information and wisdom we will ever need to live godly lives, 2 Timothy 3, 12-17. You don't need new revelation. There's no such thing. All you need is the Word. And yet, questioning the teacher, questioning the teacher with the capital T, questioning God's sovereignty, that, beloved, is inappropriate and sinful. It is. And, And I believe the book of Job makes that point and that truth absolutely clear. Because at the end of it, Job gets a monumental, colossal blast from God. Did you create everything? Um, no. The only thing I create is trouble. That's what I thought. We're not to question God's sovereignty. We're to walk by faith. And believe it or not, there are actual answers in this Bible. When you need answers, go here. Go here. Verse 3. Job continues, he says, does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? I wouldn't even ask God a question like this. I'd I'd be worried about a lightning bolt. Like a, a courtroom lawyer, Job interrogated God through three searching questions. The first one is simple. Do you enjoy oppressing me? You know, it's like Clash of the Titans with all the gods up there on Mount Olympus just jacking everyone up, and they're just laughing and drinking wine. Yeah, that's our God. He just enjoys oppressing Job or oppressing anyone. He asks, do you enjoy oppressing me? Do you despise me, the work of your hands? Like, you created me. You created me. Now, you despise me? What's that all about? And then his third question is, do you favor the designs of the wicked? Of course course the answer to all three is no. 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 These questions were legitimate questions that he was asking in the midst of his suffering and pain. Right? These are legit questions asked. He was just targeting the wrong one. He should have been asking Satan these questions. Not God. These questions should have been directed at the enemy, but Job's underdeveloped theology of evil and twisted perception led him to conclude that God was his oppressor, God was his despiser, and that God had somehow favored the the, the designs of the wicked. The enemy, Satan, he's the one that enjoys oppressing God's people. He's the one who roams to and fro looking for one to devour like, a, like a, a roaring lion. He's the one that likes to try to consume God's people. He's the one who oppresses. He's the one who despises us, Christians, new creations, the work, the very work of God's hands through the Holy Spirit. Satan is the one that despises the work of God's hands, us. And Satan is the one who favors the designs of the wicked. He, he creates plans and designs for the wicked. These questions These harsh, um, interrogating kind of questions should have been directed at at the one. Well, actually, no, he shouldn't even direct them at Satan because we don't even interact with with him. But he's the one that they should have went to, not God. So, we move to our second question that he asks. Why do you watch me? Verses 4 through 7, we'll just read that text. He says this to God, Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man? Are your years as a man's years? That you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin? Although you know that I am not guilty, and there is none to deliver out of your hand? At the end of chapter 7, God Accuses or Job accuses God of being a hostile surveillance watcher. He does. It's like it's like it's like he's Big Brother. Remember Big Brother, that series that was on, and then what was it? The 1984 book by what's his face that had the whole big what was it? George Orwell. That's it. He thinks of God as this. He's like a constant surveillance camera. You drive around town now, you see these little. Blue lights flashing on all the, on the light poles. That's like surveillance at all the corners. I'm waiting for them to put one out here so we can shut this thing down next door. Take that out of the recording. Uh, I don't want to tick off our neighbors, but, but we need one of those out front here. But he thinks of God as one of those cameras that's just constantly watching him. Constantly watching him. He's a, a hostile surveillance watcher, verses 17 and 21 through 21 of chapter 7. And he's coming back to this, this idea here. He envisions envisions God staring at him day and night, constantly searching for iniquity and sin in his life. He criticizes God for acting like a man with regular eyes, regular eyesight. He knows that God can see his inner life, his his blamelessness and innocence, but he can't figure out why God refused to relent. In the second part of verse 7, he asks, and there is none to deliver out of your hand? In other words, is there no one who can help me here? This is the second time Job called for an arbiter. The first time is in chapter 9, verse 33. What is an arbiter? One who could lay hands on both parties and mediate between them. And We know that the Lord Jesus is our arbiter, 1 Timothy 2.5. His mediatory work on the cross has established everlasting peace between the Father and all who repent and believe. So why do you watch me? Why are you acting like big brother? Why why are you always looking for sin and iniquity in me? That's his position here through this poetry. We can move to the third agonized question. He says, why did you create me? We see this in verses 8 through 19. We'll pick it up at 8 through 10. He says, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and you will return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Job acknowledges that that God had fashioned and made him. Now this sounds a little like Psalm 119 verse 73 where it says, your hands have made and fashioned me psalmist picks up on this theme later there. But then Job charges God with destroying him. It's obvious that fatalism had crept into his mindset. He sees God as a a potter and himself as as the clay, and he asks, Why did you create me? Did you do it for no purpose, to merely return me to the dust? And he also uses a a dairy metaphor here. He was very sensitive to us lactose-sensitive people here. He uses a dairy metaphor to describe his destruction. God had allegedly poured him out like milk. What a waste, right? And then curdled him like cheese. All of this refers to, why why did you create me if you just want to go ahead and destroy me, which is what you're currently doing? That's his... Agonized question. Verses 11 through 13 as well. He's continuing. He says, you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that was your purpose. Job tells God that he pulled a switcheroo. You pulled a switcheroo on me, God. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You granted me life and steadfast love. You cared for me and preserved my spirit. But you hid destruction in your heart. You kept it from my eyes all these years. And now you've unleashed it. This, God, was your purpose all along. You see it there? It's incredible. That is the switcheroo. But God's purpose was not some hidden destruction in his heart or Job's destruction at all. It was Satan's humiliation. Job was simply the instrument God used to accomplish this. Some of you might think, well, that's not fair. Well, guess what? If you're thinking that, you just question God's sovereignty. Sinner. God's purposes, we need to understand. God's purposes are grander than the little bubbles we reside in. He is a global God. He is the divine maestro who is directing the symphony of all things to redound for his glory. 2 Corinthians 4.15 Job was, was wearing horse blinders. All he could see is his little world. And this is understandable, isn't it? Pain can cause this, and so can prosperity. But we got to avoid making the same mistake. He has God in this little box of his life and world. He doesn't understand the grander purposes here. He has no concept of that, but God had something much larger playing out than Job's suffering. Job's suffering was for a purpose. All suffering is for a purpose. Verses 14 through 15, he says, If I I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. Job was confident that if he had sinned god would have been watching him and not let his offense go unpunished job had no problem with this he would deserve to be punished if he had sinned if i am guilty he says woe to me hey if 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 the shoe fits i get it i deserve everything that's happening punishment would be due he reasoned if the charges were in fact true but here was the rub He knew he was in the right, and yet he felt that he was being treated like a bad man, like he had sinned. And his destroyed flesh made him look and feel guilty, and this filled him with shame, so much so that he couldn't even lift his own head, couldn't even lift his own head. Verses 16 and 17, and he says, and were my head lifted... You would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Look at the military term there. If Job, in all this despair, in in all of this felt condemnation and destruction with his head down, if he were to simply lift his head, he believes God would just... Hunt him, like a lion. He, like a lion. Would, uh, like um. Like you would hunt a lion, like a lion hunter, which I don't support. By the way, I don't think they should kill those beasts. Unless one's coming at me, then I got to do it. He thinks that he thinks that God would be like a lion hunter. Boy, if I just if I just if I just okay, let me try it a little bit. Oh, there he is. He's right there with a spear. You know, he thinks that God would hunt him. He believes if he were to just lift up his head a little bit, raise his countenance a little bit, God would array divine wonders against him. He would just hit him like Harry Potter with miracle after miracle. Exacto! That's like a knife. It's not really a curse. but (laughs) This is what he thinks. He thinks that God would just... Hit him with miracles. He, he thinks that if he were to lift his head just a little bit, that God, God would raise witnesses against him. And I think he was thinking of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar because they weren't acting like friends. They were acting like witnesses called against him. He says, if I were just to lift my head just a little bit, that's why I won't do it. I'm just going to keep it down, pointed at the ash heap. If I just lift it up a little bit, God will increase his vexation against me. And worst of all, God will bring in fresh troops. The first ones, they got pulverized or they're tired, they need a break. Let's bring in some new troops. God would array his army against this guy. This is how he feels here. This is beautiful poetry. It's, it's terrible despair. Verses 18 and 19, he says, Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Job asks God, why was I brought forth from my mother? Born? And then he tells God that he wished he had been stillborn. Because then, no, I would have seen him. And he would have been carried from the womb directly to the grave. In other words, if he had died at birth, he could have avoided all this trouble and pain and uncertainty and confoundment and everything else. Have you ever said in the midst of your suffering, man, I wish I'd never been born? That's what he's saying, but much more beautifully than we could. He could just avoided everything. And this is literally the second time he wished he was stillborn. Chapter 3, verse 11 is where we saw it the first time. Job's reasoning, if pulling a switcheroo and unleashing all of the terrible things Job listed here were God's hidden but now revealed purposes for him, why did God create him in the first place? What a waste, right? Wouldn't that be a waste? Why would God create his life and bless his life for the purpose of destroying his life? That's his reasoning. That would be the reasoning of any one of us if we were in his shoes. Job Job figures, "This this is just ridiculous, this is irrational, this is illogical, this is unfair, God, why would you do this? But of course, none of these things were true. God had not created Job for destruction. God had created Job for Himself, to be a recipient of His steadfast love, to be His servant and to be the instrument by which the Almighty would humiliate Satan and teach all creation that God is worthy to be worshipped for who He is, not merely because of what He gives. Oh, if, if Job could have just seen that a little bit. But then again, if he had known, how would he walk by faith? And he's barely doing that. God literally fashioned Job for this high and glorious cause to shame the devil and teach creation a lesson. But Job was unaware of it. Beloved, we have been fashioned for a high and glorious cause. And the Bible summarizes it for us in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our high and glorious cause is to do everything for the glory of God. We are to walk in a manner worthy of this high and glorious cause, Ephesians 4, 1. All of our suffering and travail and tribulation and persecution, everything that we go through, we still have in the midst of it a high purpose, and that's the glory of God. That's the glory of God. So it matters how we respond in the midst of those terrible things, doesn't it? It matters. Let's move to Job's fourth and final agonized question D, why don't you leave me alone? We see this in the last verses, 20 through 22. Job says, Are not my days few? then cease and leave me alone that i may find a little cheer before i go and i shall not return to the land of to the land of darkness and deep shadow the land of gloom like thick darkness like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick as darkness job does god a favor here Because, you know, God, he just needs favors from us. He reminds God of the brevity of life, the shortness of life. Aren't you glad Job was there to do that? (laughs) He reminds him, aren't my days few? The brevity of life, my life is short. Do you not understand this? And then he tells God to, to leave him alone so that he can have a little cheer before he dies. This is the second time he did this. We see it in chapter 7, verse 16. Now here's the truth. The presence of God during suffering is a consolation, a comfort. Psalm 46, Bruce read it earlier. I'll read verses 1 through 3 again. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Underline that in your Bible. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. He's not talking about nature. He's talking about all the storms of life. And he's saying God's presence in the midst of those things is an ever-present help, a comfort, a consolation. But that is not how Job saw God's presence. Not at this point. To him, the Presence of God had become an irritating nuisance, a camera with a little red light on all the time recording his every move, like big brother always watching and looking for faults. This, too, was the work of Satan. This perception and perspective that Job had, that is the work of Satan. He twisted, twisted up and twisted and twisted and twisted and twisted the battered patriarch's mind. Job was starting to believe that he would find a little cheer in God's absence. That's twisted thinking. You talk about being deceived. When we start to think that we'd be better off without God there, that's deception. That's Satan. You know Satan is there. You you know he's there. That's what he does. It is in God's presence where we find what? The fullness of joy, Psalm 1611. In verse 21, Job describes his death and destination. In verse 22, he elaborates. When he dies, he says, when he dies, he will go down, he will go down to the land of gloom like thick darkness, darkness like deep shadow without any order Where light is as thick as darkness? What's he talking about here? He's talking about Sheol. He's talking about Sheol. Sheol is a subterranean prison below the surface. Job chapter 17, verse 16. It is a a place of torment. Luke chapter 16, verse 23. Sheol is not the destination of the Old Testament redeemed. They went to Abraham's bosom. They went to paradise. Luke chapter 16, verse 22, and chapter 23, verse 43. Job's comments about his destination, about Sheol, show that he had an underdeveloped theology of the afterlife as well. Not only did he get his destination wrong, but he also believed he would not return, which does what? Denies the resurrection. Job wanted God to leave him alone so he could live out his remaining days with an ounce of cheer before he died and entered this land of gloom, Sheol. That's the mark and, and presence of Satan there, getting him to think those things. Closing. This entire ordeal traumatized Job to the point of deep despair. I mean, it, the, the poetry that he, that he wrote here, or whoever wrote recording it for him, it's it just oozing and dripping with despair, is it not? This is a man in, in deep despair, deep, deep sorrow. Take your deepest sorrow and multiply it by a 100. That's where he's at. And Satan capitalized on Job's pain by twisting his thinking. Absolute twisting of his mind. And quite frankly, the battered patriarch appears to be out of his mind throughout the letter, doesn't he? Chapter 10, he appears to be a Christian out of his mind. The agonized questions he asked make little sense to us. But again, we mustn't forget about his pain. We mustn't forget about the dread he experienced because of God's silence, not being sure of where he stood with God. If we were in his shoes, we would be there with him. But right now, we read this because we're not in his shoes, it makes little sense to us. In fact, it maybe even bolsters our pride a little bit to think that, hey, there's no way I would respond to God like this if I was going through these things. Uh, We would be worse. fact is, Job had done nothing to merit divine judgment. He was, as it says over and over, blameless and upright. His prayers and complaints certainly appear ignorant and foolish at times, but were they not warranted a little? Who among us would respond any differently from Him? We act foolishly and complain about lesser things, don't we? The weather, bad drivers, hip-hop messed up orders in the drive through. I mean, you, you know, if I don't get my curly fries, I get regular fries. I don't even want to tell you what's going to break loose. And if there's not ranch with them, it's over. We 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 act foolishly and complain like this over lesser things. We do. We do. Don't we? I think the main thing we re- need to recognize from the text this morning and really from the book of Job in general, is Job's suffering was not the result of personal sin. And we've had a bunch of sermons in in, in Job so far, and this is not a subject that we've talked about yet or fleshed out. His his suffering, I mean, we've mentioned this several times, and, and, and the text mentions it. His suffering was not the result of his own personal sin, right? He was innocent. Job chapter 9, verse 23. And here's the deal. We need to test ourselves to make sure that our suffering is not resulting from our own personal sin. That's a question we have not yet asked in this series. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15 tells us plainly that, that doing evil, sinning, causes suffering. Two weeks ago, I encouraged us to kill sin in the morning, in the afternoon, and at night to avoid unnecessary suffering. Firstly, really, to glorify God. We don't need to be... We need to glorify Him through our lives. Not Sinning does not glorify Him. We need to get that down. But to avoid unnecessary suffering, we need to kill sin. We have to kill it. I think we would all agree that life is already full of trouble, is it not? Matthew 6... 34, John 16, 33, in this life you will have trouble, Jesus says. Why would we want to make it worse through sin and additional suffering? Why? Why would we want to do that? That's insanity to me. Why do I do that? Got to kill it. Sin is extremely deceitful. John Owen wrote, Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if it is allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. Sin also has blinding power. It has blinding power. It can keep us from recognizing And taking responsibility for our actions. It can lead us to blame others for our suffering. Or worse, blame God when we are the ones causing the suffering through our own sinning. I've been a pastor for 13 years now and I have seen this over and over. I've seen it in our church body, RHC. And I see it today in our church body. If we don't start killing sin, sin is going to kill off this little congregation. Our eight-year journey will end. We got to get it together. Is that what we want? The good news is the Lord Jesus is ready, willing, and able to deal with our sin. He is. If we will humble ourselves and confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 1.9. That is a promise. Just as sin brings suffering is a promise, there is a promise in Christ forgiving sin. And yet if we deliberately continue to sin after we have received the knowledge of the truth, God's judgment or discipline will eventually come and we will find ourselves in a world of suffering. That's a promise. We as a church, as a church body, as as even individuals, we need to do a thorough job of repenting. The time is now. Now. We need to re-hate sin all over again. We need to get back to that. Somehow, some of us have have lost that. At one time, you hated sin and you you turned from sin. But now some of you are embracing it. We need to do a thorough job of repenting. We need to re-hate sin again. We need to consecrate ourselves afresh to the Holy Spirit and to His pure ways. And we need to reject Satan's whisper that God's tender care for us has grown a little colder, a little stiffer. God is not flustered by our sinfulness, beloved. His deepest disappointment is with our tepid thoughts of His heart. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life, Romans 5, 8, and 10. You see, that's another one of Satan's deceptions is to make us believers think that if we sin, we lose the love of God. That's exactly what was happening with Job. I'm trying to encourage you, if you have sinned, to repent of it and turn from it, knowing that God will deal with it and that your sin has not caused Him to love you less don't think like Job. That's the work of Satan. Don't think like Job. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning, and I pray that it has pierced hearts You know, all churches, Lord, are messy, and this one is too. And that's what sin does. And I pray, Lord, that through your word today, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you have pierced us in such a way as that we we're we going to thoroughly repent. We're going to turn from sin. We're going to, our, our disposition against sin is going to change. We're not going to love it anymore. We're going to hate it. We're not going to run to it. We're going to flee from it. We're not going to cherish it like gullum's ring. Sin is not our precious. We're going to kill it every time it rears its ugly, gnarly alligator face. We're going to kill it. Lord, help us this morning through the Spirit to be sin killers. Beginning in our lives. Oh, help us, dear Lord. Oh, help us. Father, we need your help. Have mercy on us, please. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.